We're talking about um, the second part of last week's lesson, and I'm wanting to deal with chapter 6, verse 1 in particular. As God's fellow workers, we urge you, do not receive God's grace in vain. This is the whole warning from last week that what we were talking about when we were looking at how Christ, his love compels us or our love for Christ compels us, controls us in so many ways. When we look at the gospel, we are told in 2 Corinthians time and again that this gospel is a ministry of reconciliation. It is the, the gospel or the word of reconciliation. And as we looked at last week, one of the things that, that we looked at was how this gift brings us back to God. Because without this gift, we learn in Scripture, well, we all sin. Every one of us. There's not a single person that can say, you know what? I just don't do the things you talk about, Mitch. Because all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. You may not have sinned this particular sin... But oh boy, you have sinned. And the more you get to learn of yourself and humble yourself before God, you get to see how great a sinner you are and I am. We're all sinners. It's just that admitting it is the first step to solving the problem. <laughs> kind of like one of that 12, the 12 steps. You've got to be able to admit it. But we're all guilty of sinning before God. And as a result then, every one of us we look at salvation, and at some point, we get into this mindset that if I keep, keep trying, keep trying, keep trying, I'll overcome. Even the best of us among Christians can slip into this mindset, because I hear it in our speech. You know, if, if you've got a problem, you just got to get over it, and try harder, and try harder. And I've admitted to you, I have gone through that in my life where I've said, okay, i got to try harder, try harder, try harder. And I may have some success, but never perfect success. And when there's not that perfect success, I beat myself up at times. I have. Because I've tried so hard and I still have sinned. Well, that's why... When you look at all the world religions, including sects that profess Christianity, man somehow becomes his own savior. I mean, you look at what it takes to be a good Muslim. You kill your way to paradise. That ensures your way to paradise. Or you work toward nirvana by, by doing good deeds. I mean, Hinduism, Buddhism, a lot of the New Age movement, it's all on man. In Christianity, biblical Christianity, it was paid on the cross because we could not pay the debt. And having been in Christ, we rely upon the grace as we walk in the Lord. The grace, the gift, if you will, that brings us to God and keeps us in Him. And so that's why we're told in chapter chapter 23 of Romans chapter 6 that the wages of sin is death but what happens to those who believe in Jesus we have the gift of the ever everlasting life it's a gift it's so great a gift that the irony is in in modern industrialized nations we don't talk about this gift we'll talk about every other gift under the sun that we think is so wonderful that we can share it on Facebook 
so easily about this or that, about how wonderful this news is, but about the gift of everlasting life, the one which no one could ever pay for. And many professing Christianity are quiet. But it is the greatest gift. And the more and more the love of Christ controls you, the more you cannot contain it. Do you see that? The more the love of Christ, the love that you have for Jesus Christ because of what he has done for you, the more it controls you. And the more it controls you, the less selfish you are, the less your will takes place, and the more he becomes fluid and paramount and powerful in your walk with him. And that's what we're looking at this morning because the opposite of this gift is this warning this warning that contrasts from that condemnation. So here's the love of God and what he's done for us. And, and I want you to not look at this lesson as just this academic, okay? Here's what chapter 6 verse 1 says or what chapter 5 verse 14 through the remainder of the chapter says. But how is God's working taking place in your life? How does, in fact, the love of Christ, your love of Christ, control who you are and what you do? You see, the love of God frees us from sin, right? That's what we're told in Romans chapter 6. You go from being a slave of sin to a slave of righteousness. But it's more than just a slave, we are told later on in Romans, as we are also told in 2 Corinthians. The love of Jesus controls us. Paul says it in a different way. I beseech you, therefore, brethren, by the mercies of the living God, that you present your bodies a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God. Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind, that you may prove what is that good, perfect, and acceptable will of God. That's your reasonable service. That's the love of Christ in your life, controlling how you live. And it's expressed in the way we go about our daily activity, every one of us. So the love of God frees us from sin. It frees us to walk in Christ. And that's what we were told takes place. And as, as we had looked at last week, it is the love of God that allow, <clears throat> excuse me, allows us to be the righteousness of God. I, think about that. The love of Christ allows us to be the righteousness of, God, righteousness of God in him, in Christ. So you take the vilest of sinner that have come to the Lord. And by the way, it does not change overnight. Right? I mean, how long have you been Christians, a number of you? Decades. And Christ is still working on your life as he is in mine. Decades. And so we take the vilest of sinners who have been living according to this world, and they, with us, we represent as the church the manifold wisdom of God, the righteousness of God found in Jesus. That's an amazing gift that we can have. That's what happens when the love of Christ compels us, controls us to live for the glory of God. The problem is, when we get to chapter 6, verse 1, and Paul is saying in this text, we then as workers together with him plead with you not to receive the grace of God in vain. Why would he say that when he just got done saying the love of Christ controls us? You see, what we've had in our Bible study in 1 John is no different than what Paul is appealing to in 2 Corinthians 6. 
the gospel is supposed to bring us life. And with this gift, such great joy that it transforms our life. And therein lies the purpose of God's grace. Going back to chapter 5 in verse 15, he said, He died for all that those who live should no longer live for themselves. The whole reason of becoming children of God is so that we might live with God, like God, for God. That was the purpose of mankind before sin came into this world. That we live with God. That we live like God. And that we live unto his glory. No different now that we have the blood of Jesus. And so with the purpose in mind, some had the mindset, as in the first century, that, you know, here's God's grace. I can go out. I can, if I can use the young terminology, I can go party. And with the mindset that some have in the name of Christianity, I can just go and confess my sins later on because God's going to forgive me. That's vain grace. That's profitless to you. It's sinful. That's not the love of Christ controlling you and living for the glory of God. That's you abusing the grace of God. That's you taking it for granted and just using it for your selfish gain. That's not biblical Christianity. And so while there may be this one extreme where when you talk about the grace of God, there are some Christians that say, now Mitch, when you talk about God's grace, don't you realize that some people can use that and abuse Yeah. People who are not truly converted to Christ, yeah, they'll use it. Are you saying that brethren that are converted to Christ are going to abuse that? This warning is not for the faithful, but for those whose lives are based on the flesh. It's a warning to Christians who divide, who backbite, who gossip, who slander. These are the things that the church at Corinth had problems with. These are Christians who are not living like God, nor living for Him. And so this warning was not to the faithful, but to those who needed to be pleaded with, who were not living as they were supposed to be called. And so the question is, how can the grace of God be vain in someone's life? Well, the first one, which is not the, the import of this um, sermon, but it's there, is those who have a different belief system. In other words, you hear the gospel and you receive the gospel. And at some point, you go from Jesus Christ saved me to now, I've got to earn my salvation. Now, most of us here no longer have this kind of mindset, but I know some have had that mindset, and some may still struggle with this mindset. But when you're saved, you're not saved by your strength. Even when Peter says, be saved from this perverse generation, even when Paul says in Philippians 2.12, work out your salvation with fear and trembling, you're not saving yourself. When he says, be saved from this perverse generation... It is a passive statement. You're being saved. You're not saving yourself. And when Paul says, work out your salvation with fear and trembling, what he goes on to say as that sentence is not come to a period, it is a continual state statement in verse 13 where he says, for it is God who is at work in you. Or as Brother Otis would say, the Holy Spirit 
working in you. The Spirit of God works in you to do the glory of God, to do His will. He convicts you of sin. He confirms you in righteousness. But some go past it. And they get into the mindset like we have in this country that only the strong survive, only the best can, and so on and so forth. And so we look at, well, only those that work the very hardest can enter into heaven. That's not it. Not it at all. God saves the weak. He saves the poor. He saves the blind. He doesn't save the righteous. He saves the sinner. But some forget that. And that is why we have passages like Galatians chapter 5 and verse 4 where he says, Those of you who wish to be justified by the law, you have fallen from the gift of God. You have fallen from grace. You're, you have vain grace. You're receiving vain grace. Now contextually, Paul is dealing with not those from a belief system here. That's where John comes in. That's our study in 1 John right now. That's the study in Galatians. Where there is this different gospel being taught. One where you earn your salvation. One where you're justified by keeping of the law. Not by the blood of Jesus. Not by your faith in Jesus Christ. It doesn't mean that you are not a doer of the, the will of God. It just means you're not justified by the law. Here... You have those that it's not a matter of belief, but a matter of walk. They no longer live according to the purpose of God's grace. We just went and read out of chapter 5, verse 15. I want to reread chapter 5, verse 14 and 15 together. Because this is the crux of what we're looking at for our study this morning. And it is, it's a very simple lesson. There's not a lot of thinking that has to go on. It's right explicitly in front of our faces as to how we're supposed to live. And that's the exhortation for today. So I want you to look again at chapter 5. This time I'm going to back up a little bit earlier, but I'm going to focus in on, on verses 14 and 15. Chapter 5, verse 9, Paul says to the church at Corinth, therefore, after he makes assurance of the resurrection of Jesus, he says, therefore, in verse 9, we make it our aim, whether present or absent, to be well-pleasing to him, to Christ. For we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ, that each one may receive the things done in the body according to what he has done, whether good or bad. Knowing, therefore, the terror of the Lord, we persuade men, but we are well known to God. And I also trust are well known in your consciences. For we do not commend ourselves again to you, but give you opportunity to boast on our behalf, that you may have an answer for those who boast in appearance but not in heart. For if we are beside ourselves, it is for God. Or if we are of sound mind, it's for you. For the love of Christ compels us, or as the New American Standard Translation says, controls us because we judge thus, that if one died for many or for all, then all died. And he, Jesus Christ, died for all that those who live should no longer live for themselves, but for him who died for them and rose again. Do you see that? What motivates you to live for the glory of God? Is it as someone 
in our Bible class this morning, in the auditorium class, said there's some kind of a checklist? Is that what motivates you? Is it not going to hell that motivates you so that you do the will of God? Does that control you? Does that compel you? I've already admitted to you that used to compel me. That's why I became a Christian. I became a Christian not to be with God, but so as not to go to hell. That's why I became one. And I lived for a number of years that while I would, with my mouth and with my lifestyle, say, you know, I love you, Lord, there was still a lot that motivated and compelled me based upon not wanting to go to the fiery place. At some point, the light switch went on when I read the words that love casts out fear. I don't know exactly when that took place, but when that did take place, what also coincided was a better understanding of reconciliation, a better understanding of God's grace, a better understanding of God's redemption. And when that light bulb went on, it was like it brought me to my knees. That I've been serving my God out of the fear rather than out of love. And no longer is it out of, well, you know, I've got to do these things and then I'm good enough somehow to get into heaven. Even though I verbalize saying I'm never good enough. But when the mind actually changed and said, you know what, I'm never good enough. I'll never do enough. I might give you all my life and I want us to sing by faith, none of self and all of thee. But I know while I live in this flesh, I've never gotten to that point. And I'm not so sure if while I'm in the flesh, I'll ever be fully there. The desire is there to, to be that way. And the effort is there a lot of times to be that way. I don't say all the time because I don't, I'm not that way all the time. <laughs> but if I take this grace of God and go on living selfishly for my will, then I deny the very gift given to me. Brethren, we've got to put away our idols. I have to put away my idols. We have got to live out in such a manner as to make the grace that has been extended to us, bestowed upon us, profitable for us. We've got to deny ourselves. We've got to take up our crosses. And so this is for those that, that it's not just struggling and saying, Lord, I love you, I'm going to live for you. This is a warning against Christians who are not compelled or controlled by the love of Christ or your love for Christ. I cannot speak for every one of you individually. I can speak generally of us as a congregation that we love Jesus Christ, but I can do that for the whole church of Christ. The church loves him. But individually, you've got to self-evaluate. You've got to look deep into your life and reflect your walk in Christ. And that is where we are told in 2 Corinthians 13, examine yourselves as to whether you're in the faith. Test yourselves. That's what he did to a church that was based upon the flesh, even though they were in Christ. And that is why he wrote what we call 1 and 2 Corinthians I wish we had 3 Corinthians, by the way. <laughs> we just can't find it. 
we would have had a lot of in between what we call first and second Corinthians that might have cleared up some things. But do you not know yourselves that Jesus Christ is in you? <coughs> Unless you disqualify. Please don't receive the grace of God in vain, brethren. We have many wonderful things that are taking place in the congregation, in the work that, that's, that's here, that's in existence. And I am overjoyed with what's going on with the work. But we cannot rest on our laurels. And it's easy to do. It's easy um, when I hear of congregations. You know when, when you're a small congregation and you're in like the storefront place? And you've got to roll up your sleeves and you've got to work. And everyone's just doing things and working and working. And, and then you say, well, okay, we're at the point where we can go into this big old building. And everyone's working again. Everyone's excited. And then when you get into the big building, it's like this. The same thing can happen when there's a lot of what's going on taking place that at some point we can say, wow, things are going real good, and then relax. Our service to the Lord does not equate earning salvation. Our service to the Lord equates with those who are saved living out salvation. Huge difference. Don't take the grace of God in vain. Live for his glory. If you're not, turn back to the Lord. That's why we are being granted this gospel of reconciliation to return to the one who died for us, that we no longer live to ourselves, but for him who died for all. And I want you to know, friend, if, if you're here and you have not given up your life, we are told to kill ourselves, to die, to crucify that old man of sin, so that you can be the new man in Jesus Christ. And the picture of that is found in the words of Jesus when he was saying, he who believes and is baptized will be saved. Or as when Paul says, do you not remember that when you're baptized, you're baptized into his death? In the likeness of his death? And that when you're raised to walk in newness of life, it is likened to his resurrection? That's a picture of you giving up your self-will because you're dying to that man of sin. If you can live this life, the grace of God is abundantly yours for eternity. That's your invitation. Why not take advantage of it right now as together we stand and sing?